you take a minute and pray with me? Father, we admit that we're about to take a look at words that were written thousands of years ago, written in another language, and translated into English for us. And sometimes um, we wonder how much we can understand this, being that it was written 2,000 years ago, and particularly this book of Revelation that's written about things that have not happened yet. While we know, Father, that we're closer to the end than what the writers of this text were, sometimes we feel like it's a long way off, and other moments we feel like it's tomorrow. God, I ask that your church, the people in this room, as we look at this text this morning, would look for how you would ask us to apply it to our heart. Give us understanding. Give us a capacity to see things that we wouldn't see on our own were it not for the work of your Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would take our earnest desire to know more of your character and nature and use it for the glory of your kingdom and for the expansion of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this. Amen. A couple years ago, I was in a men's study, and I was asking uh, the guys who were in the study to help me understand something. I'm not sure they took me as seriously as I meant it, something I've been struggling with for years, um, trying to understand when God says to give him glory, how I do that, how you do that. Specifically, when, when Scripture says, and I just read it to you from, second, or from First Chronicles, um, the writer says this, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. Bring an offering and come before him, Worship the Lord in holy array. How do I, a mere mortal, give God glory? I understand the universe giving him glory. Scripture says the universe speaks glorious things of our God. The firmament, the earth, the creation speaks about our God. How do I do that? How do I, a man, give God glory? I know I can rob God of his glory. I can steal things by claiming things on my own that I did that God really did. God says he is a jealous God, and by that he means that when glory is due him, he doesn't want to share it with anybody else. So we have to be very careful to understand what does it mean to give God glory, and do we seize every opportunity that we have to give him glory? Revelation 15 remarkably speaks to that issue. You'll see as the verses unfold this morning how we understand better what God's glory is and how much he values it. To set the framework for that, I'm going to take you to a verse in the Old Testament first, and then I'm going to take you to a verse in the New Testament to help us get this in our mind of what God thinks of when he thinks of his glory. So first look with me up on the screen. I'm going to ask you to read this one along with me, and I do mean read aloud. I had to clarify that for the first service, all right? So I want to make sure, I want you to read it aloud with me, or we're going to start over again, and you can do it the second time, right? And after this passage, we're done working through these first two. How many, first of all, have had coffee this morning? How many had two cups? You may wish you had three by the time we're done looking at this. Caffeine's really going to have to kick in. Okay, Psalm 19.1, first of all. Let's read this together. 
The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. This is what it's saying, church. This universe that we see around us speaks of the glory of God. When it says the heavens speak, it's talking specifically about the second heaven. By that I mean the first heaven is the atmosphere that surrounds us. Second heaven, outer space, the universe, the solar systems. Third heaven is the heaven where God dwells. The second heaven is being referred to here, and it says the heavens, second heaven, declare the glory of God. The planetary systems declare God's glory. I get that. When I look at some of the photos from the spacecrafts and from the telescope Hubble, the imagery of deep space, I get that. I see the glory of God. This next one says the firmament shows his handiwork. That means planet Earth. The firmament is where we walk and live and have our being. The Grand Canyon, the Rocky Mountains, the Nile River, China, Russia, the firmament speaks to the glory of God. So this is what it says, day unto day it utters speech. His creation is speaking to us. Pay attention. Night after night reveals knowledge. What does that mean? That means when you see the stars in the sky at night, you're asking the same question that your ancestors asked. Generations of people who have gone before us who have stared at the sky and say, this can't be by accident. There is something greater than me behind this. That's why 92% of Americans believe there is a God because we know we're part of something much much bigger. It didn't just happen. So that's why Psalm 19.1 says, there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. That means Mandarin Chinese, Russian, to live in Zimbabwe, your language understands. Scripture declares there's no language where people can't comprehend that God is So let's look at this word doxa. This word doxa is a Greek word which means glory. So here's the definition for it right out of the dictionary. The Greek dictionary says, glory means very apparent brightness, dignity, glorious honor, praise, and worship. That's where we get the word doxology from. That's okay. That's a description. But I like the Hebrew word much better. The word is kabod, K-A-B-O-D-E. That one you're not going to see on the screen. I want you to pronounce it with me, kabod, okay? Now let's say it like the Hebrews would say it because people from the Middle East, when they pronounce a word, they really feel it in their intestines. It's a guttural sound for them. So this is the way it sounds for them, kabod, okay? It's heavy, it's weighty. Let's say it together, kabod, You're saying glory, kabod. 
And it means weighty. It literally means weight. So the heavens declare the weight of God. How big of a scale would that take? How can you weigh God? The heavens declare the mass of our God. They speak to what is made up of God. His perfection, His holiness, His righteousness, and yes, His wrath. It speaks to the weight of God. So one theologian said it this way, the glory of God is the sum of His perfections. Everything that He is, is His glory. Okay, with that framework in mind, and this is why you're going to wish you had coffee, let's look at Romans chapter 1. Okay, look with me up on the screen. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. This is what Paul wrote. It is one of the weightiest passages of Scripture. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Did you notice as you're reading through that whom God's wrath is poured out on? People who do not glorify him as God. That's what it says. They knew God. They did not doxa him as God, nor were they thankful. This statement is megas. You've learned this word as we work through the book of Revelation. Megas means huge, significant importance. It's a megas statement because Paul writes here that the invisible is visible. What is invisible to us can clearly be seen. Look with me up on the screen, verse 20, just singled out by itself. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen meaning we're supposed to be able to see who God is. So the mind brightly beholds what the eye cannot discern. The mind understands what the eye can't quite get a grasp on. And that's why it says it's understood by the things that are made. All the things that are made around us speak to our inner being. Therefore, The outward creation, everything that surrounds you, is not the parent as modern-day secularism teaches you. The outward creation is not the parent, but it is the interpreter of faith in God. Do you get that? That's where the first congregation said, no. Okay, the outward creation is the interpreter of our faith in God. Because it begins within our being, Scripture says. It is not our parent. We did not evolve from the dust as apes. We were created from the dust as men and women, fully functional. There is no evolution according to the Scriptures. 
There is creation. And God says, my creation speaks to my glory. And so therefore, to deny him his glory makes us just like those in Romans chapter 1. They did not glorify him as God because they rejected him as creator. So as we work through the book of Revelation, people would say, why is God so angry? Why is he so wrathful? In the book of Revelation, he seems like he's out to pound people. It's because his wrath has to be fulfilled since his patience has come to an end. People no longer glorify God, and so he draws the line in the sand. And as you're going to see in Revelation 15 today, the line has been drawn. And there is no longer an age of grace after chapter 15. So I ask myself this, how do we, how do I give God glory? How do I specifically give glory to my creator? Here's a fact. This faith has its primary source within our own being. It emanates from us. Look with me up on the screen again, verse 19. What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Meaning it begins from within our being. It's manifest from within us, but it becomes an intelligent and an articulate conviction. Something that we can express through what we observe around us. So look with me at verse 20 again. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So the inner revelation of God, what he's placed within you, and the outer revelation of God, what he's placed around us, speaks to one unequivocal truth. God is. And if God is, he has therefore revealed himself through his word and expressed himself through the life of Jesus Christ to draw us back so that men are without excuse. That's why Romans 1 ends the way it does. I challenge you later today, go back and spend some time in Romans chapter 1. It will help you greatly with your theology. So where we find ourselves in the book of Revelation now is this unprecedented holocaust on the face of the earth is being unleashed by God because men have rejected him and therefore he is going to take planet earth back to himself. So we find ourselves in Revelation 15. If you have your Bibles open, you're going to want to turn to verse 1 and we're going to hear about the glory of God in ways that you may not have anticipated. First, we learned in Revelation chapter 14 last week, or two weeks ago, that God offered one final opportunity to the earth to repent. Revelation 15 begins the end of the age of grace. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find them in the pew racks in front of you. And if you're new here to New Hope, you may not know, those are there for your benefit to take with you if you don't own a Bible. We'd like you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand. So take it with you when you leave today if you don't own a Bible. This first sign that John speaks of, he says, I saw another sign. This first sign that he saw was of seven angels with seven plagues. So let's read first. Revelation 15, 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last because in them the wrath of God is finished. John's very explicit in the word that he uses here. The word is horao, a Greek word which means I stared at. I was so amazed, I was staring at it. I saw this. And what did he see? Seven angels with seven plagues. 
When you see the word plague in Scripture, especially in Revelation, the word is plege, P-L-E-G-E, and it means different than an epidemic. It doesn't mean something that comes upon people like the bubonic plague and then goes away. Plague means a wound, a fatal wound, something that kills the item. It stops it from existing. So that's plague, plague. And this plague that he sees them carrying in their hands, he says, is great and marvelous. We've seen the word great before in Revelation, megas. But this is the first time he's ever added the word marvelous to it. It's megas and it's marvelous. It's so overwhelming. Why? Because it is the end of God's work on earth, the end of God's wrath. It means it's finished. The word finished that's used in the last of the sentence, the wrath of God is finished, is the word teleo. Teleo was only used one other time in Scripture. It was used by Jesus. Jesus is on the cross, and he said, it is teleo. It is finished, meaning completely done. Everything that he set out to do was completed. This word is used the same here. God is teleo. He is completely finishing his wrath. So when loosed, when these plagues are loosed upon the earth, we know that we're nearing the end of the tribulation. We only have six chapters left in this book. We're reaching the end point, and we're going to watch in the next couple weeks the final plagues as they're unleashed on planet earth, and they are horrific. Verse 2. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. Perhaps this is flashes of lightning that John's seeing across this vast expanse. We don't know. But what we understand is this large crystal sea that he sees in front of him is very similar to what he saw in Revelation chapter 4. In Revelation chapter 4, we looked back and we saw that there was before the throne this massive crystal sea. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. Back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus. Turn back to Exodus chapter 24. I'm going to show you that Moses saw the same thing and the prophet Ezekiel. Moses saw it first. Exodus chapter 24 and verse 10. Now understand where this takes place. Moses and the children of Israel have escaped from Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. The waters of the sea have come pouring down upon the Egyptians They've sung the song of Moses. They've celebrated and had a feast. And then God invites 70 of the leaders of Israel to come up on a mountainside along with Moses so that he can show himself to them. So this is where you're picking it up in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 10. Then Moses went up with Aaron, verse 9. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Okay, now flip over to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 24. 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Little dust bunnies puffing up from your Bible because you haven't been there in a long time. Ezekiel is one of the prophets, okay? Should read him once in a while. Ezekiel had a vision of heaven just like John did, and Ezekiel saw the same thing. Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 22. Now over the heads of the living beings there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. So three sources all seeing the same thing, this massive ocean of glass in front of the throne. Now, when we think pavement, and that's the word that's used there, we think blacktop, asphalt. That's because we think in modern terms. For the ancients, when they saw something that they called pavement, they thought of brickwork or tile work. So think of sections put together. Sections of glass like crystal. And he sees the saints of God standing on it. Who specifically does he see standing on this glass floor? Those who had been victorious over the beast. These are the believers who were redeemed during the tribulation. These are those who came out of the tribulation period and they're standing before God. And it says they were victorious. How were they victorious? They were victorious because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And what did they do? They overcame the beast and his name and the number of his name. That means they didn't get the mark. They didn't get 666 put on them. And they didn't worship the image. And they didn't worship the beast. And so they're victorious. They're standing before God. And what are they doing? They're holding harps, it says, musical instruments. Now, when you hear people who didn't grow up in church talk about playing harps in heaven and sitting on clouds, that's where that verse actually comes from. That's where they get that reference thinking, well, that's what people do. They sit around in heaven and play harps. Well, these individuals actually are holding worship instruments. They're part of a worship team, and they're about to glorify God. How do they do that? How do they give God glory? Look with me at verse 3. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God. The Almighty, righteous, and true are your ways, king of the nations. Now, if you have an NIV Bible, it might say king of the ages in your Bible. That's not an accurate interpretation. It should say king of the nations. Nothing wrong with being king of the ages. He is king of the ages, but more accurately, it's king of the nations. And here's what they're doing. They're declaring truth about God. They're saying something specific about his character and nature. First of all, they're singing the song of Moses. What is that? What do we know about that? Well, let me show you a line up on the screen from the song of Moses. It comes right out of the book of Exodus. Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. If you take that phrase and compare it to Revelation 15, you'll find they're exactly the same. They're singing this song because why? Because they had just escaped from slavery. They had escaped from Egypt they had crossed the Red Sea. They had watched the Egyptian army destroyed. And they're standing near the side of a mountain looking back over the Red Sea that's washed away the Egyptians. And they're declaring the greatness of God because of his works and his ways. But it also says they're singing the song of the Lamb. You saw that back in Revelation chapter 4 in which those before the throne were praising Jesus because of what? 
because he delivered them from bondage. So what we find here, church, are bookends. The redemption history. This bookend, deliverance from slavery, God's mighty power over the Egyptians, and God's mighty power over Satan, displaying himself. And so they're claiming here, how great are your works and how righteous and true are your ways, king of all the nations. This is a model for you when you praise God to give him glory. I praise you for your works, God, for your provision for my family, that I have health, that I have paycheck, that I have the capacity to buy food, that my car operates for your activity in my life. Perhaps it's something as simple as your car breaks down and somebody picks you up and gives you a ride to where you go. Is God behind that? If we believe God's in control of everything, we would say yes. So this is an opportunity for you to look at this and say, am I giving God the glory due his name every opportunity I have? Ask yourself this question in the back of your mind, perhaps when you're in work this week, or perhaps students when you're back in school. If something remarkable happened in the last few days and you know it was from God, we tend to only tell believers, don't we? Boy, let me tell you what God did in my life. Try expressing that same statement to a non-believer. Now, I know that takes you to an uncomfortable place because it's going to open up a conversation perhaps you didn't want to step into. But you're going to find individuals are fascinated when people speak of God. To say, God did this blank in my life causes someone to say, what do you mean, God does things for you? That'll take you to a place you never expected to go. And it's an opportunity for some really great conversations. So these individuals are praising God for his deliverance and for his overcoming Satan. That's what you find taking place here. And they continue on in verse 4. There's only eight verses in this chapter, and they move along very quickly. Verse 4, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify, doxa, there's that word again, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship you before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Has that happened yet, church? Look closely at what that says. For all the nations will come and worship before you. Has that happened? No. So what they're writing about, what they're proclaiming, is something that's about to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. It is a fulfillment of what was written to the Philippians, of what was written down in Philippians 2.10. And if you grew up in church, you know this verse very well. Look with me on the screen. Philippians 2.10. At the name of Jesus, what? Every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What this writer is saying, every single person, from the leader of Russia to the leader of China, from the President of the United States to the lowliest worker in whatever job you want to proclaim, everyone will proskuneo the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the word that's used there for worship. Proskuneo means bow. Everyone will do it. It just hasn't happened yet. 
So we find them claiming that the end days are almost here in which every single person who's ever breathed, and I do mean every single person, will worship Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what my Bible says. So as a result of all that John has just seen, his attention is distracted. He hears the singing, sees the sea of glass, watches the angels coming out, and all of a sudden, his attention is averted. Look with me at verse 5. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Now there's a mouthful. The temple of the tabernacle of testimony. When you see the temple of the tabernacle of testimony, you have to say, what is that? And I've seen those words before. What is that coming from? I picture in my mind, first of all, these huge doors opening up. I don't think they creak because they probably don't have WD-40 in heaven. Everything just moves smoothly. But I picture John looking inside, and I don't think he's looking just inside the gates because of a word that's used here. The word that's used here is naos when it refers to the temple. And specifically, the word that's used refers to the place that God inhabits, meaning the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies. So John's not just looking inside the heavenly temple. He's not just looking inside the courtyard. He's looking into the holy of holies where God dwells, specifically to his dwelling place. The temple sometimes is referred to as the temple or the tabernacle of testimony. Here's why. Think back to the 1980s. You saw um, Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade. They're going after the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? You've got Indiana Jones chasing after this Ark that everybody wants to get their hands on and hold. Because why? Because it represented power. Well, that's a real item. It really existed. During the times of the Old Testament, the people of Israel took the Ten Commandments, the literal stone tablets and put them inside the Ark of the Covenant. Now, they called the commandments the testimony of God. And so when they took the testimony or the commandments and put them inside the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark, was literally put inside the Holy of Holies in the temple. The temple was referred to as the Temple of Testimony or the Tabernacle of Testimony. That's where that name comes from. We're speaking here, church, of heaven's temple the temple in heaven itself, the original. What was built here on earth was a copy of God's original temple in heaven. And John is there looking inside the doors of the original temple. And so he reverts for us back to the beginning. Now his attention is taken to the temple and he sees something remarkable. Verse six, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen clean and bright, and girded around their chest with golden sashes. So we got seven angels who have come from the holy of holies, meaning they have access to God, and they're clothed in clean, bright linen. Clean and bright linen speak specifically to their holiness and their purity. They are holy, they're in the presence of God, they're pure, and they've got this golden sash around their body. The word that's used here specifically speaks of a sash like you would see in a beauty pageant. A contestant would wear something that goes from the shoulder to the waist. That's the same word that's used here. 
So they've got this large gold band that goes from their shoulder down to their waist. And I picture this to be a very solemn proceeding because as they walk out of the holy place where the God of the ages dwells, something is handed to them. Look with me at what that is, verse 7. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. You remember in our early studies of Revelation, those four living creatures who surround the throne? One of them leaves the throne room and begins handing out the plagues. The word that's used here for these bowls, don't think of a big popcorn bowl, okay? Or not even a heaven giant-sized popcorn bowl. This is a very little philaus bowl. It's a saucer. And in the temple, you understand that in the Old Testament, they had many instruments that they used for their sacrifices. Some of them were bowls. This philaus saucer was intended that whatever was in it would be dumped out very quickly. So it's not by accident that we're told specifically what kind of a saucer it is because these plagues, they're going to be dumped right out. It's not a slow pouring. When it happens, it happens in very quick succession. So it begins to unfold this way. So this imagery that we see is of one of the four living creatures who surrounds the throne, leaves the throne, goes to the angels, and one by one hands them a bowl. What's in the bowl? It says, the wrath of God. The wrath of God is represented symbolically and is going to be poured out on the earth. You will understand next week that what is about to be poured out will destroy planet earth. It is horrific. Everybody living on the earth will feel the impact of it in some way. Verse 8 says this, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory, the doxa, of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished, just like on Mount Sinai. You remember learning about that? God came down on the mountain. The mountain went ablaze. There was smoke that enveloped the whole region, and no one could approach it. And God said, no one will approach it, or you will die. His glory is hand in hand with his wrath. You see, they're equal. His holiness, his justice, his righteousness, his wrath. He's not a greater God of wrath than he is a God of love, but he's not a greater God of love than he is of wrath or a greater God of justice than he is of righteousness. They're all equal. They encompass him, and that's his glory. It's the sum total of who he is, and so it fills the temple. So we have to ask ourselves this question. What specifically is the glory of God? Can we see it? What does it look like? I will answer the first question, yes. There is a time coming when you will see the glory of God, when you stand before him. But let's look first at six verses I'm not going to comment on. I just want you to understand what Scripture says about what the glory of God looks like. There are physical descriptions for it. This first one comes from when Moses was standing all by himself with God, and he begged God and said, please, Show me your glory. And God said, when I do it, when I pass by you, I'm going to pick you up 
and put you in the cleft of a rock, and I'm going to cover your face with my hand because no man can look upon God. I don't want you to see me. So let's look at this first verse, Exodus 33:22. And it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Scripture says that at that point when God passed by Moses, it was as though Moses was looking in the afterburners of a jet. It was a brilliant glow, something that you can't really look upon because it hurts your eyes. He saw God passing by, and it was so brilliant, he couldn't look upon him. Isaiah 6, 3, And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Ezekiel one twenty eight. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Ezekiel 10.4, And the temple was filled with a cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Luke 2.9, And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. 1 Timothy 6.16, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. God's glory is the visible manifestation of his presence. And a few people in time on earth have been able to see some semblance of his glory. And it's so powerful, it makes them collapse. There is a day coming, church, when you will stand before your God and you will see his glory. You will stand in his presence. And it will be awesome. It will be awesome. Overwhelming. And it's a day we will all encounter. Every single one of us. But until then, we have a responsibility to glorify our God. So we ask the question, how do we give him more of what he already has? How do we give God glory? Well, very specifically, the praises of people magnify the glory of God. You as his church, you praise him, and so therefore you magnify his glory. You add to it. You get to participate in this action now. Second thing that I've noticed, you declare his works. How often have you missed the opportunity to declare the works of God in your life? To declare his ways. God says it brings me glory when you talk about me. So don't miss the opportunity when you're talking with people, both believers and unbelievers, to say, this is what my God did in my life. This is the one whom I belong to. In that action, in that moment, you're giving him glory. You're adding to the glory if we can do such a thing. I'm going to ask you to participate with me now in something specifically as we end this to read together a verse that glorifies God. 
understanding now what it means to give God glory, you'll read this in a whole different way. So church, would you stand with me? We're going to go back to where we were at in the beginning when we started, back to the book of 1 Chronicles, and this happens to be chapter 29 this time, not chapter 16. And this was written specifically in response to a moment when God came on earth. If you remember the moment, if you've read your Bible and you understand in the Old Testament, when they built the temple, Solomon finished it. They began singing praises to God. And there was a moment when God's light beam came from like heaven down to earth and filled the temple with such power and glory, no man could walk into the gates of the temple. This is written in response to that. First Chronicles 29.11, let's read it together out loud. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might. It lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Did the Old Testament writers know how to write or what? That is totally cool. Sometimes I don't know what to say to glorify God properly. And so I open up my Bible to the Old Testament, and I read things just like you just read, and I read them back to God. There's nothing wrong with that. Saying, God, I don't know what else to say, so I'm just going to say this. God, you're great. You're majestic. You're Yahweh. You understand that, church? You're awesome. That's your responsibility. Let's pray together. Father, we've done our best to stay with this text this morning and understand what's going on. We ask that your spirit would give illumination where it's necessary, that we would be able to better comprehend the things that were written so many years ago, but have such a direct impact on our life today. Father, I pray for this church as we leave this auditorium and go out and take on the opportunities of this world, not only that you would go before us, but that we would be conscious to declare your greatness as you work in our lives. Father, we ask this in the mighty name of our soon-coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.